0: We're continuing to study Genesis, and if you've looked ahead at the passage assigned to me now, you know that if I had several more weeks, I probably wouldn't feel ready to venture into a topic of the Lord God made a woman. I have to venture into that topic in the confidence of God's Word and what it says and not what my opinions are or the opinions of our day. I intend to treat this last section of Genesis 2 in two parts. Uh, It could be divided even more than that, but I'm going to look today. I'll read the whole remaining section, but really I'm just concerned today through verse 22. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the last part of the passage. Listen to God's Word in this wonder-filled book of Genesis, beginning at verse 18 of Genesis 2. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and birds of the air and beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is God's precious Word, true in every part and every word. Just Friday of this past week on ABC's Good Morning America program, Barbara Walters presented a brief highlight of an interview, which I understood was to be shown later at night, of her interview with a transgendered so-called man whose name is Thomas. The curiosity about Thomas is that he or she, depending on how you want to say it, has already given birth to one child and is pregnant with the second. And yet, if you would meet Thomas, you would notice a mustache and a beard that has to be shaved every day because, of course, Thomas was born as a woman, and yet has had her body partially altered by surgery and by hormones. And so now the law of the state she lives in defines her as a man, even though her physiology does not. What a tragically confusing world we are presenting to our children and our grandchildren. What is a man? And what is a woman? You almost have to wonder if anybody knows the answer anymore. But the Word of God is not confused on this subject. In Genesis 2, we come to a very momentous text. The creation of Eve as a wife for Adam, the first man. Now, it's been hinted at already, and I didn't say much about it when it was said in Genesis 1.27 that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It wasn't elaborated there. Of course, it awaited the elaboration that is before us today. I cannot emphasize strongly enough the crucial importance of this text, this latter part of Genesis 2, because what you find happening as you study the Bible particularly the New Testament, is that everything by way of definition of manhood, womanhood, and marriage points back here. Every time the Scripture undertakes to talk about these subjects, almost without exception, some reference is made, a phrase or something, is said, it was not so from the beginning, or even divorce goes back to here. And this passage is put under the spotlight. So if we are going to have a right reference point to look back at later, we'd better check the reference point carefully as we go through it now. The first woman was God's gift for the first man as a unique helper and companion who would respond to him in a perfect and complementary way. If you want to try to hold on to what I'm going to say today from this passage, I would tell you there are really two phrases that pull it together, two essential statements that I will make, and they're the second and third points of the sermon, namely that God made the woman for the man, and He made her from the man. Now, these actions don't signify that a woman is man's inferior certainly not his slave, certainly not his plaything. One person involved here, the man was made to be primary initiator and defender and to some extent leader, while the woman was made to be the primary responder and nurturer and helper. And how sad it is that we've taken those terms and we've twisted them and we've made them into hateful things, or some have anyway, If each of these are seen alone here as God created them, they have tremendous dignity as individuals. And together in union as God designed as one man and one woman would be married together, they have dazzling potential. Absolutely dazzling. Because in a marriage, these two human beings display the full grandeur of the image of God. Because manhood and womanhood are so fundamental to how God made us. You cannot talk about people, you know. If you talk about any person, you refer to someone in conversation with somebody else, you say right away the name and you say he or she, and right away, they oh, you're talking about a woman. Oh, you're talking about a man. And right away, they have a category that conditions everything that is thought or said about a person. Such a finely tuned core of what human beings are meant to be naturally is going to become an area of confusion in a fallen and sinful world. And naturally, it isn't a surprise at all that Romans tells us that Romans 1, when it tells of the fall and its consequences, that one of the very first things that are seen in the human society is that in the area of of defining manhood and womanhood and their interaction and their sexuality is the place where there will be abuse and distortion and tragedy because it strikes right at the vitals of what we are and what God made us to be. Well, the first thing I want to consider with you this morning is a bit of a preliminary point, but it's important. It's what must be labeled as the Bible's first malediction. Now, I try not to use words that are not understandable, so I'll explain the word, because you may never have heard the word malediction, but you have heard its opposite, benediction. A benediction, if you don't know what it is at the end of every worship service, means to speak blessing, to speak about that which is good, that which is profitable and positive. If that's a benediction, obviously a malediction means to speak of ill or speak of something that is negative or out of sorts or not good. And we have the Bible's first malediction in Genesis 2.18. It is not good, the words of God. It is not good that the man should be alone. You know that up till now the Lord has evaluated all that he's made and he has said, good, good, good. Good, very good. And now for the first time, something is pronounced not good. And it is a man all alone without a covenant partner, without the company of a wife. And God evaluates it as not good. Now let me take an aside for just a second that I think is important today. Because I've seen single people browbeaten, by Genesis 2.18. And I don't think there's any reason for that. If you're a single person here today or you're divorced or widowed or separated, you need not take undue offense at this when the Lord says it is not good that the man be alone. I don't believe Genesis 2.18 intends to lay a guilt trip on you for your singleness or to make you out as some kind of an inferior person. Nor is it saying that you have personally done something wrong. Many of the reasons people are single are not of their own doing, not of their own choosing, often of tragic circumstances that they tried to make different and could not control. Or if you're a person who even chooses to remain single, you are not sinning. Certainly not. Paul even indicates how that can be an advantageous state to do the Lord's work singles, I believe, can identify better than most of us married couples can with the aching kind of loneliness that this text is talking about. I was married very young. I, for all intents and purposes, hardly had a single life to speak of. And I think because of that and because of a happy marriage, it it, took me a long time to understand as a pastor observing people's lives and troubles how deep and how terrible the ache of simple loneliness can be in people's lives. It's a devastating force that hurts many people with an ache that they live with constantly. And that's a bit of what God is pronouncing about here. He's not pronouncing it against you if you're single. He's looking at the situation and saying, I understand that there's an ache here. There's a depth here that is out of sorts in many, many cases of those who are single. Now, notice that it's God who makes this unilateral assessment. It's not Adam. You know, Adam wasn't filing a grievance. He was saying, God, you made me all alone, and I don't like it. No, he wasn't saying that. We don't have any sense that it was originating with him because how could he file a grievance? He had no idea that there was a different way to live. He had always been alone. I don't think if you said, hey, Adam, what do you think of loneliness? He would have said, what do you mean? I don't know anything else. But here as God evaluates the situation and says it is not good, he also determines and resolves to become the one who will redeem this situation. I will make a helper suitable to him. And then before this great fix comes in, you have verses 19 and 20. It seems a little bit like Moses' pen strayed, or or his word processor moved a paragraph to some place that it didn't belong with 19 and 20. If God is concerned with making a helper suitable for Adam, why do the next two verses tell about Adam the biologist and zoologist going out and studying the animal kingdom and naming the animals and carrying that little activity out, which which actually to you doesn't seem very important. Well, we think it is important because, in fact, it was related that Adam, in studying all the other creation of living things that God had made, was obtaining an acute consciousness of his own lonely state. He surely observed the animals in pairs. He surely began to understand that Two things, actually. He understood, stood, number one, that he was superior to all of these, and, and they were not like him. And so he couldn't find his partner among them, but he also understood that they had partners, and he didn't. Now, every once in a while, Hazel, the cute little dog at our house, has to get into the sermon. And I use her as an illustration for what all of you know, that a dog can be a companion. A companion. And even I, the curmudgeon about animals, can say our dog can be a companion. She can chase a toy. She can go on a walk with you. She can uh, nuzzle her nose practically into the ice cream bowl if you don't keep her out while you're trying to have your ice cream. And when I'm not home, she gets my side of the bed. So she can be a companion. Dogs are fine for companionship. Up to a point. They will provide you with companionship as long as you're satisfied with companionship at the dog's level. If you want conversation, they can't provide it. My wife would tell you that our dog can talk, but she can't. (laughs) If you want to exchange views about politics or music or something else, it can't happen. You can have fellowship with the dog at the dog's level. The dog will not rise to your level. It won't happen. That's what Genesis 2, 19, and 20 are trying to make Adam understand, that he had a radical discontinuity with the whole animal kingdom that created a position of solitude for him, and he had to discover it by study, it seems. He had to discover, the last part of verse 20, that for him there was no suitable helper to be found. And I would sense here that a keen hunger was born in the man, He probably couldn't put a name to the hunger. He didn't know how it would be satisfied, but he was starting to understand that something needed to change. Now, one area of Adam's inadequacy here, of his need, is is very, very obvious. Remember the creation mandate that God blessed the man and woman back in 128 and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, if Adam was thinking about that, he might have asked God, how am I supposed to do that? How will procreation be possible? I'm here alone. I see how the animals reproduce. I can't do that. I need a helper suitable to me in order to simply bring forth children. But I would want to stress to you, and I I have many theologians who would stand with me on this. I'm not alone, That the practicality, if we could say it crudely, of obtaining a womb for reproduction was not the main concern here. In fact, if you look here in Genesis 2, you don't see Eve mentioned as a reproduction helper or a mother at all. That's going to come up, of course, and she is going to bear children, and that's important. But I want you to notice that the emphasis of Genesis 2 falls on Adam's need for a companion slash wife more than a mother of children, It's as if the text is saying, and I believe it is saying, that relationship in marriage precedes reproduction as a divine priority for God. God is concerned that the man have a companion who suits him. All right, that's the malediction. Now to the two main points that really define this text. I think you're prepared to hear them, and I'll state the second point, with a bluntness that would possibly offend, it certainly would offend if I was speaking to an audience of the world at large, maybe not all of you or maybe not too many of you, but I'll state this point this way, that our text definitely teaches that this woman was made for, little preposition, it's very important, the woman was made for the man. It says, for Adam for his benefit, for his completeness, no suitable helper was found, in other words, among the animals. Now, anybody who's been brainwashed, as many people have been by decades of feminist Scripture bashing, is mad. They're mad because I've betrayed that I'm one of those chauvinist pig conservatives who is against women and who says that women are made for men, and so they must be men's property to be walked upon and trampled upon and harmed and all of that. And if you're ready to march out the aisle and slam the door behind you, I guess you'll have to go ahead. But I wish you'd stay a minute to hear what I'm really saying. The Scripture does teach that the woman was made for man, but it certainly does not teach that she was made to be his doormat his slave, his unpaid prostitute, or anything of the kind. Certainly not his inferior. What does it say? These words are are very, I'm just convinced they're so important, these words. They're repeated twice, once in verse 18, and then at the end of verse 20, a helper who is suitable, or a suitable helper. What does that mean? If you will understand what that means, I think you hold in your hand, a key to the whole issue because I think it means exactly this. And I'll state it and then I'll repeat it. Despite having full equality before God, obvious differences in men and women define for us distinct roles, and when rightly understood, these roles are fully complementary, not competitive. I'll say it again. Despite having full equality before God, Obvious differences between men and women define distinct roles for us each. And when rightly understood, these roles are meant to be. God's intention was for them to be complementary, not competitive. Ladies, I tell you, a helper suitable does not denigrate you. Every advocate of the, the women's movement, the radical side of the women's movement, will tell you it does. Oh, what is this helper suitable? We're just junior assistants to do what men tell us to do? No. What this does mean is someone whose strengths are exactly and precisely honed to match, listen to me, the man's weakness. A helper is somebody whose strengths are honed and suited to match the man's weakness. By the way, did you know that no less than 16 times in the Bible God calls himself Israel's helper? Would God call himself a helper if that meant he was a slave for Israel to walk upon or, or some kind of a junior associate? What we see is that when God helps human beings, he retains his deity, he retains his grandeur, but he steps into a servant role in the person of Christ to get under us and lift us up which, of course, he did supremely at the cross. Now, if you're a person has ever had to call out for help, help me, I picked up this thing and it's so heavy I can't carry it, or, or whatever, you know that what you want is somebody with a strong gift to come, right? And maybe even a strength that you don't have, maybe a different gift that you don't have. Therefore, in making women a helper suitable for a man, Here's what God was saying. Listen to this carefully. All alone, men are incomplete, and men need help. Can I get an amen to that from the women of the audience? Come on. All alone, men are incomplete, and men need help. Now, it seems to me that the person who is called into that situation would not feel insulted by being called a helper, being called to provide what the man cannot provide. And once we would agree, if we can agree, that a woman is made for the man in this sense because he needs help, then we are ready to begin elaborating. We're not going to do it today. We don't have time. But we could on a later occasion elaborate about the roles that women have as helpers and that men have. In relation to women, to provide mutual help one to the other. You see, this view that I have just stated is what many will call, and I call, the complementarian view of understanding men and women. Complementarian. Lots of big words today. Malediction, complementarian. Simply means men and women are equals, made by God to complete and assist each other, not to be competitors for the same roles. Now, in our 2008 society, that's not the viewpoint, as you may well know, that prevails in our society. That has a name, too. We call it the egalitarian view, and I can define that for you real easy. It's a view where a woman or a man says to the opposite, anything you can do, I can do better. Anything you can do, I can do better, and vice versa. In fact, the egalitarian view denies male and female roles with a vehemence. It says, don't talk to me. The minute you start defining roles, you men are are putting us down. And so it ends up in an almost ridiculous position where it denies physiological and emotional differences between men and women and says, "Oh, that's all just cultural conditioning. And we need to do away with that cultural conditioning and just acknowledge we all do the same things 50 50 There shouldn't be any kinds of differences. And the minute you emphasize the role differences, you're doing something bad. Well, that may sound dumb, but unfortunately that viewpoint has taken over our schools and our government and our military and all kinds of areas of society with horrendous consequences. The woman was made for the man, meaning for a role to help because man is weak. And man was made, vice versa, we could say for the woman, because she has weaknesses that he can meet. Now, thirdly today, if we look at verses 21 and 22, we see the other key statement here, that the woman was made from the man. Another preposition. She was made for him, but she was also made from him. What does that define that is unique or or helpful? Well, really simply, it tells us We are equals. We are equals. We may be different in our roles, but before God, we're equals. And so you're invited here to look at a great mystery in these couple of verses, especially verse 21. The first surgical operation with the first anesthesia. I've had people come to me with their Bible open, and and this is one of the real problems. I I mentioned last week the man who said, "I, I just can't get over these things that seem like fables in Genesis. And they say, do you think this really literally happened, this rib operation? Well, I say to you this, God's Word is true. It teaches truth, and it teaches history. And indeed, in Genesis, it does speak symbolically at times, and it speaks of mysteries that no human being witnessed. This, there was no human observer. You know, you picture the operating room with five heads around a table with their surgical garb on. No, there was only one operator here, one surgeon. Nobody else witnessed this. This is how God chose to communicate what he did. And I believe it conveys truth. That's all I can tell you. John Calvin commented on verse 21 and he said although profane persons claim this surgical way of creating a woman seems ridiculous and some say Moses was dealing in fables yet to the eye of faith the wonderful providence of God shines forth here I if we take God at his word that's what we have to say and in hearing that the Lord removed a rib from the man's side and made a woman from it what are we learning Well, we're learning that woman was not created out of nothing like the stars were in the planets. Remember, Genesis 1, God spoke, and and where there was nothing, then there was something. This isn't how woman came about, nor was she made as Adam was described, being made out of the dust of the ground. She's made a different way. She's made not completely new. In this sense, she's made the same, from the same essence, the same flesh and bone as Adam, despite her being different. When we say she emerged from the man, it seems very clear that we banish every notion of her being either the man's inferior or his superior. She comes from the man as his equal. And she, too, is God's divine image bearer. Now, the tendency, of course, today is, you know, The feminists are saying, yay, he finally said women are equal. And that's what we want to stress. Let's stress equality and, and do away with all that other stuff and minimize any distinctions of maleness and femaleness. And when you start doing that, what do you end up with? Thomas, the pregnant man. And the terrors of our society, taking a toll on a rising generation who have no idea what it means to be a man or a woman. Equality of male and female creation before God does not mean interchangeability. One writer I was reading this week used a sort of a crude illustration. I suppose it will appeal to men more than women. But he said, think of an in, internal combustion engine. You mechanically minded men will identify here. He said, you know, in an engine you have a cylinder head and a crankcase. They're both made out of steel. They're both sizable chunks of the engine, uh, and they're, they're sort of similar in general size and, and maybe cost, but you can never exchange. You can never take two cylinder heads and put them together and have an engine or two crankcases and put them together and have an engine. Sorry, ladies, if you don't know about those things, but it, it, it won't happen. You've got to have each part. You've got to have a cylinder head and a crankcase. They are perfect complements of each other. They're not interchangeable. And yet, because of our sin, we take this area of our creation, equal before God but with different roles, and we twist it. And men are probably the greater twisters and manipulators, I will freely say. We abuse, we compete, and we end up with something terribly vandalized, from what God designed us to enjoy. One more thing to say here when we say that a woman was made from a man is this, that in the New Testament in particular, one passage would be 1 Timothy 2.13. Paul looks back here. This is one of those passages I was talking about that looks back here, and he says, "'Adam was formed first and then Eve.'" And he proceeds to develop a discussion of what we call the biblical doctrine of headship, another doctrine I'm not going into in detail today. But there is some emphasis put in a place like that or in Ephesians 5 and other places on the firstness, if that's a word, of Adam. And the Scripture says being first implies to a certain extent leadership. And as the New Testament develops that, leadership in two particular areas that are spelled out, the marriage, and the church. It doesn't say the man is always the leader everywhere at all times, that there could not be a woman president of the United States or a lot of other things, or a woman corporate head. But in the marriage and in the church, this headship firstness principle is emphasized as a distinct part of the man's role to, in those limited circumstances, initiate and defend the woman and leader in godliness. And the woman's role to respond and to help and to support. Now that never, never, ever, ever, ever gives any man the right to hold this Bible and say to the woman, I'm the boss. This book says you have to do what I say. I'm the tyrant. I intend to domineer. You better obey me. That is not in this book. In fact, the leadership, the headship, is portrayed as being so compassionate, so self-giving. Read Ephesians 5 that it compares exactly to what Christ did for the church. The domineering husband cannot hold a Bible and say, this book backs me up. The older commentator, Matthew Henry, had it perfectly. You've probably heard his little paragraph quoted at wedding ceremonies many times. These words have come down through the ages for several hundred years. Henry described it this way, "'God did not make the woman out of man's head for her to dominate him, nor from his feet to be trampled on by him, but she was taken from his side to be equal with him before God.' and from under his arm that he might protect her, and near his heart that he might cherish her forever. You got it right, Mr. Henry. That's exactly what this passage is talking about. I summarize once more as I close here. The first woman was made by God for man. That tells us she had strengths. Strengths to fill a role that the man didn't have. Strengths to help and assist and glorify God in this complementarian relationship. And she was made from man, which affirms beyond any doubt that she is man's equal in intellect and spirituality and value before God, who is the Father and Savior and creator of them both. Now, next week I want to look more carefully at verses 23 to 25 and what they imply about marriage. And we're going to look at this and see Adam breaking into song. When he sees the wonderful gift that God presented, he married the woman without delay. I think there's simply no wonder of creation out there among all the swirling galaxies and planets and under the microscope or anywhere you want to peer at what our Creator made. There is no greater wonder that God made than the wonder of manhood and womanhood. And sin always attacks that which is most an expression of God and His nature. So it's no surprise that our sexuality and our gender roles are the arena for power games, manipulation, and pure vandalism of the image of God as He stamped it on us as men and women. But as we close today, I remind you of this, and it's not anticlimactic at all. Only in the new birth by faith in Jesus Christ do we begin to recover the wonders of what we were made to be as men and as women. And it is our Savior's grace that has power for forgiveness and restoration, even in the tangled web we often make of this area of God's creation. May God be the one we look to for restoration and for grace. Father, as we continue to think on these things, Your Word is balanced. Your Word is true. How far we've come from the basic truths put forth here. Help us to be people who are not swept away by the tide, to be people who understand the equality of men and women, but also to see the roles that you will spell out for them. To your praise, because in what you've made in us, we see your image and yourself. Help us in this matter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.